Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Walter, and in today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Henrik Hagemann as my guest. There are many reasons, actually, for which I could be excited to welcome Henrik. First, he's a brilliant mind. The company he co-founded and now represents as CEO Pure Affinity was born in an MIT-hosted science competition. And talking of MIT, Henrik ranks in MIT text list of 35 under 35. By the way, he was also one of Forbes 30 under 30 in 2019. Then, he's also quite atypical as he has worked as a potato farmer, he's lived and trained Wushu with monks for several months, and cycled back from there following the Silk Route from China to Denmark in 87 days. Even this interview was actually postponed because he was again cycling a couple thousands of kilometers across Europe. And yet, that isn't still the reason why I'm so glad to open season 4 of this podcast with Henrik's interview. Indeed, what's intriguing for us water professionals is that Pure Affinity addresses one of the hottest and most intricate challenges there is in our industry – PFAS treatment. You'll notice that Henrik also zooms out of the usual PFAS talks to give us a glimpse at the bigger picture before zooming back in and describing how he makes chemical Pac-Man work for him. He also unveils what the future of PFAS treatments and who knows recycling may look like and how to unlock all of this. Let me close that long introduction by reminding you that if you like what you hear, you can help me beyond everything you may imagine by sharing that episode with two of your colleagues or friends. Please do it and I'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Henrik. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you and we'll see quite soon why. But I have to open with our good old traditions and that involves that you have to send me a postcard from wherever you are. And if I get it right, you're in London. So what can you tell me about London that I would ignore by now? <laughs> well, I guess the one one thing that often overlooked this we actually have quite a, a diverse scene of like different cultures so where i stay is like really close to the notting hill carnival we just had like a few weeks ago and that one is like yeah it's pretty cool it's not a lot been allowed lately but whenever it is possible it's great one to come see well let me jump directly into it and let's tell everyone why i'm so excited to discuss with you because actually you were listed by forbes as one of the 30 under 30 and by the MIT Tech Review as one of the 35 under 35. So I don't know if you're soon hitting the 40 bar, which will make you one of the 40 under 40. But I was wondering, how do you get this recognition and what was your path to impress such impressive people? Yeah, well, I guess it's it's often seen as like maybe a symptom of the journey rather than like the goal itself. So yeah, I started out with this crazy synthetic biology science competition with a team of other like engineers and scientists which was called like at the time nobody knew what it meant genetically engineered machine what is that but these days like everyone is like oh that's how our vaccines are made and it's like yeah that's right uh, but that was yeah that was back in 2015 then we journeyed through this sort of imperial college ecosystem of creating a venture and yeah i think there were some really hard decisions that had to be made uh, along that journey some of them were between is this going to be a tech push or a problem solve, so like a mission-driven company. And I think, yeah, we've definitely like withered down. We started out with 10 people at that iGEM journey. And then now we're like two left on the team. The others, they went to do the PhD, like we were all supposed to do, myself included. And I, I'm sure some of them will become like similarly like recognized by whatever external body. Uh, but I, I guess it's a symptom of then having chosen some of the more mission-driven approach 
and then really sticking with this thing. Like it is not just a, a quick fix to develop some of these things. Already in 2019, it had been four years. Now it's been yeah a few more years since then. Uh, and maybe that that's it. It's like sticking with stuff when it's really like you're just piling around in difficulty. We come back to the mission part and to what you're actually doing. But you know, when I was reviewing your path, I saw many things which are, I mean, you're clearly not one of the conventional people we meet in the water industry, but I saw two that really were standing out of the crowd. First, you were cycling 9,350 kilometers from China to Denmark to give you a scale. I was cycling 10 kilometers this morning to take the train and I was exhausted. So impressive there. And you also learned Wushu, which I learned to be a variation of Kung Fu with some Shaolin monks. So how do you fit that in your journey? <laughs> and why <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's uh it's an interesting one i guess it's like a bit unusual but basically i, I spent a really long time planning this trip i ended up spending maybe a year and a half planning this trip and the the original thesis for it was that i was really interested in this sort of zen buddhism which lies underneath the shaolin kung fu stuff and as a kid i wanted to be a monk and then the other interest was i was fed up I was really fed up with studying day and night during my high school. So I went to this boarding school to leave the more mono, monolingual countryside in Denmark. And I just woke up this day lying in bed like with this simple idea of wouldn't it be nice if all I had to do today was cycle. All I had to do yesterday was cycle and all I'll do tomorrow was cycling. And so that, that kind of that was the early sprout for the idea. And then one and a half years later, I had convinced my parents to let me go. I had uh, worked so that I could earn some money to pay for the trip. And basically, I found myself, yeah, as you said, living with the, with the Shaolin monks in Henan province, China, just like central China. It's between Xi'an and Shanghai. It's the middle of nowhere, really. It's an industrial province. And the whole village was like concrete up in the mountains. It's not particularly pleasant, but I really enjoyed it. I still keep my hair a bit short from those days. We really were bust completely short uh, here. And yeah, then we were asked to train from 5.30 in the morning until 7 p.m. in the evening, six days a week. So you lose concept of weekend, day, like where am I? I didn't do it for that long, only four months. And I would definitely do it for longer if I could get away with it again. And then, yeah, the, the trip kind of, that was good preparation. And then I decided I took, I would take the sustainable way back. And so that's how I came to the cycling trip. So I, I flew out and then after the training with the monks, I basically I cycled through that silk route. So that, that took me through some really nice, well, I guess deserted parts like the Gobi Desert, Kazakhstan, uh, parts of Russia that are now like inaccessible uh, because of the tension with Ukraine. But yeah, throughout, I think, I met so much kindness from people and I was like, oh, I cannot pay these people back. Like I cannot, cannot go and pay them back for like all the kindness they offered me. But there was like a mechanic offering me to sleep in his house with the small kids also, or like someone giving me food in, in China in the middle of nowhere. But I thought, okay, like maybe I can help these people by trying to solve some of the issues. So I, I cycled through the Aral Sea. You can see it's like dried out. There are like boats in the middle of the desert where there used to be an ocean. And so I thought, yeah, later when the chance to do something with water came up, it was like a chance to develop a technology where these people wouldn't know that I would try to help them because the technology would be at the industrial plant and their sites would benefit without them having to pay for it directly. That, that's a longer story, but basically what I learned from that is maybe like keep your feet in the pedals and your eyes on the horizon. That's kind of, it translates well to entrepreneurship, I think. Sounds like a perfect metaphor as well. So uh, you mentioned that you had this competition at MIT where, where you first touched that idea of the technological aspect of what you're doing today. And you also mentioned that that element of the of the mission which I now understand has that link with, with water, but what came first? Is it the technology first, the water mission first? So they picked us out of 120 students at Imperial into a very curated group of 10 people to represent Imperial at this science competition in 2014. Uh, and they had deliberate 
practice around what makeup they wanted us. So we were 50-50 male-female. We were engineers and scientists. And we were basically thrown into a room with a white wall like behind me, asked to brainstorm. Come up with something, guys. You've got four months to present uh, in Boston at MIT. Uh, it better be good. <laughs> so we, <laughs> we went through for two weeks just like brainstorming, pounding like through different ideas. And as we, we evolved different like problem sets, there was this convergence around one being these targeted materials that you can develop in biotech. So at the time we saw like, wow, you can use these like green tea bacteria called acetobacter to make cellulose. Okay, that's cool. Like nature knows so much. And then the other side was, oh, there was this sort of impact problem of clean water where it was like huh like clean water for all is something lots of people have done but when you dig into it there is this sort of like 80 20 rule that came apparent to us it's basically like there's small group of contaminants less than 20 percent of the stuff in water which basically mess up more than 80 percent of the fresh water we have available and so the idea came like when those two rings overlapped in that Venn diagram. We were like, okay, what if we combine this thing with this thing? And we basically try just as a proof of concept and see if we can make nature create the materials and focus on the highest impact within that group with our limited understanding of water treatment in 2014. Does that mean that because today you focus quite a lot on the PFAS treatment, because you just said you have a limited knowledge of water treatment at that point in time. And PFAS is usually not the first thing that you learn about water. So was that within the concept from day one or did you build it up with time? I think you're, you're spot on. It was definitely not a simple one-off thing. In the beginning, we were considering the stuff with very long tails, so like radioactive things, some with very high acute toxicity, so like a bacteria in the water, cryptosporidium, whatever it might be, and more. And it, it only came through like us talking to customers to really learn about, oh, do you need a new solution for oxyanions? They're really toxic, guys, but... And then they would be like, ah, actually, we can use electrocoagulation, we can use ion exchange, and then Bob's your uncle, job's done. No, so but like running through this wall and being like, oh, okay, well, we could spend a lot of effort developing this technology, but there isn't really a market need for it, or the market need is small. So I'll be like, huh, okay, back to the, back to the other micro-contaminants, micro-pollutants, what were the other contestants? And I think, yeah, that was something we built up over time. And we're definitely grateful for like these uh, ecosystems where you, you're asked to go out and talk to 100 customers in 10 weeks. And if you don't, you don't get to present. So it's like, it's really a pressure cooker. Yeah, that then led us down this route of having a criteria for what to pick. So it was like, what's the toxicity? Is it persistent? Does it stick around? And then does it build up over time? Does it bioaccumulate? Those three were also like what it's like the usual European regulations for water framework. But one that I think is often like overlooked is volatility. Something that's special about some spe species is they go into the clouds and migrate and go to the most remote parts of the world. And that's something which is special about, for example, a, a Teflon chemical like PFAS. Yeah, once we came on to that, it was like a blood, like, or like a shark smelling blood. It's like, oh, this is like, there's something juicy here. You had PFAS ticking all the boxes because you could solve it. It was one of the type of compounds that you had an idea of how to treat. And that's something we've covered on, the, on that microphone in the past. It's clearly a dead angle of the water industry today, because as you mentioned, some more conventional ones may already have a treatment but not PFAS or not really, I mean, we're still in this phase, which looks a bit like, you know, beyond DVD when you had Blu-ray and 20 different technologies around. We knew that all of them could somehow match the demand, but none of them was really developed. So we're still in this, in this blurry phase, which gives you a strong opportunity, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I, I think the other like outside observation, um, I mean, obviously you can see my background, like I was playing around with the monks and like I wasn't doing water treatment in that time. Like one of the outside observations was just that we spend these orders of magnitude more energy when we filter with size exclusion principle and 80% of the pollutants we remove, they're not that harmful. So it's like, it didn't seem like a prudent use of energy. 
And that was kind of like part of the observation also in those early days in that, that sort of whiteboard imperial iGEM days. It's interesting because your approach now, what I, what I understand from what you say with this 80-20 Pareto rule is really unconventional in the water treatment. I mean, you get told, okay, remove those. Okay, you remove those. You don't think of, okay, maybe those are not that harmful. We should dedicate on those which are really harmful. So that sounds, I mean, you already gave two very interesting insights here. The first is go out and talk to customers. The earlier, the better. And the second is really focus on, on what matters. But still, PFAS is really something emerging and Do you think that the overall awareness of, of the level at which it matters is already there? Or, or is there still a disconnect between the level of, of harm it can cause and the understanding that people have of it? Yeah, I mean, we're very far from having had a microplastics general awakening for the whole population. We haven't had that for PFAS. That kind of happened for microplastics. And I was like watching an earthquake, like what the hell is going on? Like the whole, the whole planet is talking to us about whether we can remove microplastics. And we would just be like, Uh, yeah, we mean, I mean, it's persistent, but it's not that toxic. Like this is, <laughs> this is like a soft core yeah. thing compared to these other bad boys. And so I think industry wise, there's definitely a massive awakening. Like when you see Fortune 100 companies losing billions of dollars of market cap because of PFAS liabilities, like we saw in 2019, it's like, holy cow, like it's really moving to the top of the corporate agenda. And then for us, it's just doing the maths. If you take a back of the envelope like calculation, you take the lawsuit in 2016 settlement for six, $670 million dollars for one site for one fluoropolymer manufacturer. Then I did that. I said, okay, there are several fluoropolymer manufacturers with more than 20 sites. And it's, they're at least the same lawsuit liability. And so you can clearly see how this like, maps onto the balance sheet. And I think often in water treatment, we will talk about clean waterfall and isn't that just good in, in and of itself, but it's really hard to adopt when you cannot map it onto the corporate agenda. And so I, yeah, I saw, I guess, a chance for that with PFAS. And I think right now we are kind of being a bit cautious or like just not trying to spur things on too much because I think with microplastics, some of the, the general awareness was like good. But then it's, it deflates a bit after that. It's like, okay, what's the next cool thing? What's the next hot topic? That's absolutely true. I mean, when I started within water treatment, the hot topic, because some regulations were coming around, were micropollutants, then it was microplastics, then we had one for dioxin, then we had, I mean, there, there were some fame waves. And yeah, there's a rational behind that for sure. But not all of them, if you weight them, have the same consequences. So it's very interesting to hear that from you. Regarding, I mean, we've exposed the problem of PFAS. What is your solution there? How do you intend to solve that PFAS issue? Yeah, so I think first off is recognizing the size of the challenge. So people are trying to stick the most non-stick contaminant. It's not just all these things. It's not just 50 times more toxic than arsenic. It's really non-stick. And that is like, is such an interesting technical challenge in itself. And so I, I really view it as an experimental search problem. So it's, you gotta go through this iterative design, build, test, learn cycle to basically find the most suited molecular receptor or molecular binding group for a group of PFAS in a given matrix. But people often forget this piece that there is a constraint. There's a constraint in the water sector of cost of manufacturing the stability of the substrate and the functional groups and the safety of those molecular receptors. You cannot just do crazy chemistry like we can for biomarker detection where nobody gives, gives a, yeah, a crap about whether there is, there is a carbon fluoride bond in the binding mechanism for detecting cancer. People don't care there. But for us in water treatment, that's really important. And so the first time we did this, we basically went through an mRNA library to screen with 10 to the 13 different variants. That's a lot of zeros. And then we would discover a group of peptides that can efficiently capture PFAS in our chosen water matrix. And then we would test those groups of peptide mimics in a high throughput screen in our experimental labs. So you have labs working alongside the bits with the modeling. 
And then basically that, that insight led to us having a dual mechanism for binding. So you have ion exchange and adsorption, which gives you a more flexible approach. And it introduces this really exciting, for me, flexibility to have non-solvent-based regeneration uh, of the adsorbent media. So that was obviously back in 2017 when we first did that. We've since like learned a lot about how there's a need for regeneration. So that's been something we've been building out the capability for. Not necessarily the product, more the capability is, is one learning. And then we've been introducing these sort of advanced analytics. So you understand how to make the product, what the product is made of, uh, and material informatics. So you're trying to close the loop in what is our performance data and how does that link to the material properties and performance? And then, yeah, we have been mission-driven. So it's not just about biotech. It's like opening up the cloak to stuff like supramolecular chemistry so that we can have peptide mimics instead of necessarily peptides. Because some applications, let's be very real, like they require tighter price performance curves and reduced complexity of manufacturing. And so you've seen cool startups in the past, like maybe it was Biaqua developing cool enzymes to capture stuff. And it's like, nobody can, can afford that price point. And so it's, it's about reining in the complexity, uh, which has been one of the, the other walls we've had to go into and like kind of find a way around. There's a lot to deconstruct in what you just said. So let me just try to break it down. First, really for the muggles like me, to really grassroots, you absorb the PFAS, and you have also that mechanism of ion exchange at the same time. That means PFAS is in the water, you have your substrate, and at the end, PFAS is on your substrate. You mentioned that you can regenerate it. How do you do that? And what, what do they become when you regenerate your, your substrate? So for us, it's about the mass balance of PFAS. And it's over, often overlooked when you do these new treatment solutions. So we, we basically have the adsorbent media, which has these small Pac-Men. The Pac-Men stick to the PFAS in the water, preferentially. When you've filled up this adsorbent media, and it really looks like these small granules. Like if you imagine buying a new shirt, like those small pouches that are inside, that is what the granules look like. And then once you've used it up, we take it offline. So you have a lead and a lag vessel. You take it offline and you basically apply an aqueous wash step, which unclicks the chemical. So it introduces a pH change and a salt. That allows you to generate a smaller volume of PFAS waste, which is in a liquid form. And then you dispose of that liquid form as the hazardous waste, much like pharmaceutical waste or existing uh, PFAS waste it gets destroyed. And then you can reuse the media. We've covered that in our second and third patent, but we haven't done this at scale yet because we need to test like the safety, the stability, the performance, the cost effectiveness before we can go and finalize like the saturation of the media. So it's, yeah, I think it's about <laughs> what can this technology do for you? You can flip the unit economics of treatment if you can regenerate the media. And that's where the scientific like uh, enthusiasm originates from, not just from like academic interest. So... What is your, your vision there? Because you, you mentioned that you can reuse the substrate. And if I get it right, it's patented, but not yet industrialized, this reuse part. But what is your vision? Is it like something you can reuse ad lib forever? Or at some point, like a membrane would be clogging, that it's like 10 pass or five pass or three pass. Do you have a feeling there already? Yeah, I think, I think it would really be like a three pass or a five pass. What I envision is like, imagine how cool it would be if we could have non-virgin PFAS. It's like, we do need it for space exploration. We use it right now for vaccine manufacturing. We use PFAS to put out fires that otherwise cannot be put out. And so I think there will be like a use for it, but we've got to restrict the number of use. Like we cannot use it promiscuously in everything. And for that closed loop system, we need these like precision capture and ideally regenerate as a second phase solutions. So you mentioned the analytics as well. So you have these Pac-Men on the substrate, which are eating up the PFAS. And at some point, I guess they're fed. How do you determine at which point they cannot eat more just because their belly is full? It's been so much analytical development efforts, and we're really grateful to our partner who has been helping us with that, the, this sort of Innovate UK funded body in London. So basically we do LCMS in tandem to see the performance, 
But we realized that wasn't enough. Even though it's the gold standard for PFAS detection and good and everything, it's not enough to give you insights about where you capture, what other species are released. So we've been working on these sort of stability and safety testing uh, to see if we might release any sort of uh, total nitrogen, like quality control to ensure that none of the functional groups are degraded. Because it's not enough just to say that PFAS is not coming out. What if your material is not stable? And that's a real concern in the water treatment space. And then it's also about having these sort of other measures, so total organic carbon, uh, having an understanding of functionalizing the material. So does it have the same profile in terms of NMR spectrum as we would expect this material to have? And then linking that profile in, in the material composition, which is what NMR tells you, back to the performance. And that's where we build our feedback loops to inform the next variant of PFAS uh, media. When you mention LCMS, that means you have a lab analysis or do you have also online measurements which give you kind of a, an idea of where you stand? Yeah, so we work with a, a third-party body that provides us this LCMS analysis. And I think it's important to have a third party to provide it because otherwise the data is kind of a bit biased. You can say, oh, this company has great data, but they've generated all of it themselves and nobody has actually like analyzed this water that they provide. I think the other point you touch on is the whole one of the holy grails of PFAS. Uh, we want to see an online, real-time, in-situ PFAS sensor. And obviously there's a lot of cool excitement going on for that. But the reality is right now, there isn't a real-time sensor for that yet. There are cool new analytical techniques being developed, like total organic, total oxidizable precursors assay, the TOPA, or the total organic fluorine measurements, but none of them are, are real-time. And that's really what we need. Very clear. So now zooming a bit out, we have that substrate, which is in contact with water. I guess it must be in a kind of contact tank or something. Where do you place that in your treatment train? What's the shape? How does it look like? Can you just describe it? Yeah. Yeah. So if you imagine like a large stainless steel tank that operates a bit like a breather filter, where you basically have water flowing in from the top coming down at the bottom, that's the large application installation. And there we're trying to change the material, not how the operator works. And so by changing the this sort of within the constraint of a granular media, you can yeah, reduce the complexity of operation. And I think, again, one of the learnings is you can do a lot of cool stuff in the lab. Maybe you can have a, a stirred bed reactor and you can have fractionation of whatever you're doing, but it's difficult to implement those with the operators we have. And there is right now a shortage of operators. So introducing complexity there might mean that you cannot actually scale up And so we've stuck with that packed bed vessel of operating uh, because of that to retrofit. The cool thing we see is for these sort of, and you mentioned this, it's for these sort of point of use or point of entry applications where they, you just need a small volume of this media because it has higher productivity per volume of material with this like specialized grabbing uh, mechanism. There you can have mechanisms of possibly under sink cartridges where basically you capture much quicker with a smaller footprint so that users who couldn't fit it in, in their house or at the entry of the house before now can. And, and that's one of the things that's driving us in terms of productization uh, of the, these materials. That is now a very intriguing point for me. It's a discussion I somehow had with Srinath Bolizati from Blue Act when he was on that same microphone because he had a similar approach to you. I mean, it's not the same substrate, it's not the same way to coat it, but on the business model part, he was also looking at under the sink, cartridges, maybe in the industrial place, maybe in drinking water. And you mentioned that design, test, learn. And I guess that when you're just starting out in that field, you cannot just come out with uh, one idea that, that rules them all. So you have to, to focus somewhere. And when I was reading your, your marketing materials and, and the different points where you apply, I was seeing that point of views. And that recalled me, you know, the study done on Americans on PFAS in their blood, that every single American has PFAS in his blood. So I was thinking if you combine those two and you say, hey, you know, you have that in your body already today and your drinking water production plant is not able to cover you from that risk. So what if you could just screw something under your sink and you're good? So 
it sounds like probably science fiction at that point in time, but why not on the long run? So if you were to have a crystal ball and you, you look at five or 10 years in the future, where do you think is the best point to apply your technology? Is it under the sink? Is it in the drinking water treatment plant? In an industrial treatment plant? Where? <laughs> yeah, I, I have a lot of opinion about that, but I want to add one stat to you before we do. So one is they found the Nordic Council of Ministers, so this is the government, they basically put a price tag on the cost of PFAS chemicals in the blood in Europeans. It's 84 billion euros in annual cost every year. That's across 740 million citizens, roughly in EU. So you have actually more than $100 spent in, in health cost every year just for PFAS. You can see, like, you can model that out and play with the different scenarios. But I think that is something which is driving us. But Wait, I want to understand that one very good because it sounds very, very intriguing. Can you unpack that number? So it's the cost on health because we are infected, if I may say so, with, with PFAS. Yeah, so it's, it's because 97% of the population have detectable PFAS in their blood. And the C8 Science Council, which was funded by the fluoropolymer industry, concluded that there's a high certainty link to six diseases. Those six diseases are listed on the C8 panel, the science panel there. And one of them is like a thyroid disease, etc., two cancers. And basically just because of those with high certainty, they tied it into that 84 billion euro cost. They also included some environmental costs within that, but the majority of it is health costs, really, to the population. And then they said this might be an underestimate, but at least here is something, and we're the government, so we're publishing this number. Okay, I think we have now an even higher understanding of the problem, <laughs> which, which leads me back to my question, which was, where do you, you intend to treat that problem first? What is the best place? Yeah. So in my opinion, the highest impact area we can install these solutions are as close to the source as possible. If we can apply the polluter pays principle, uh, we can help so many headaches and we can put a plug in the system. We cannot be like Sisyphus who keeps rolling the boulder up to the peak of the mountain and then it just falls down again because we're treating the symptom at the point of use or the point of entry only. I think we need to get, we need to work in partnership with the people and tr introduce a business case for why possibly PFAS treatment is helpful. And if you can get PFAS treatment with regeneration, then it can enable the whole fluoropolymer industry to actually operate. Right now, they're under so much scrutiny and we, we don't want to spur on more scrutiny. There's a lot already. There are like dark water movies going around and flying left and right. I think we want to try and push that aside for a moment, be pra pragmatic and try to get close to these uh, industrial sites. Now, let me be the devil's advocate here, because that was a lot of the debate with, generally speaking, micropollutants in Europe. You have the Swiss approach, which is to say, let's treat it in wastewater treatment plants, because that is the closest you can get to the point of production. And then you're protecting the full water cycle. But Many other countries have said, yeah, okay, nice, we're protecting the environment, but at the end of the day, we want to protect the humans. So let's put it simply in the drinking water treatment plant. And that way we don't have to cope with, with the history of it. So it means the water is going to be free of micropollutants on a very short path between drinking water treatment plant and wastewater treatment plant and the rest of the water cycle. Well, who cares about fishes? I'm re really being extreme here. But just to say that on the paper, Treating as close as possible from the production point makes a lot of sense. I'm just wondering what is the acceptance of the producers to be also the one to treat it unless there's a strong regulation which forces them to do so? Yeah, I think there's been a lot on the stick, right? It's like, oh, regulation, regulation, regulation. And I think in the past, we've had a tendency to take a very human-centric approach to treatment. So as long as the humans get safe water, job's done. Now we're recognizing, oh, there's actually a, a price tag attached to biodiversity loss. If we just lose the bees, we're so screwed. And the bees also get impacted by these sort of things. Uh, so do the other species in the microfauna. And so for us, we've been like in the beginning, we were viewed as these sort of like hippie environmentalists because we cared about all sentient beings. It was like, but we don't care about it from the good of our heart, we care from, about it because there's an economic price tag to it. And, and then I th think that's an important message just on that first point. And then the second one is 
let's see if we can introduce some carrot. So could we have reuse of PFAS in a secondary phase for some of these polluters? Well, we call them polluters now. They're manufacturers. They're enabling vaccines to be made. They're enabling spacesuits to be made. Okay, that's pretty cool. People want to do that, but they don't recognize the backside of that metal. And so I think if you can have that as a second phase, it becomes a much more positive story and about the sustainability of that organization long term, because some of these organizations might have to shut down if they are sitting with $20 billion of PFAS lawsuit liabilities on their balance sheet. Shareholders can just protest and be like, divest from that. We don't care if it's in spacesuits. It's too expensive. It's too scary. And so I think those macro trends are in the favor of doing this thing. And then, yeah, there's a lot of like people with stars on the back from these conversations in the past. But I think at this point, we're trying to be pragmatic with the things that are going on. So if I get you right, that means that the approach of treating as close as possible from the production wouldn't necessarily need regulation because actually what's at stake, it's such a risk even for the company producing it that they may be volunteering to remove those PFAS. Some companies do that and kudos to them, like you have the Heineken or the L'Oreal, etc. Most of them will need some stick. Ultimately, humans need carrot and stick. So great, there's a lot of stick. Let's try and see if we can build some carrot. Talking of sticks, do you see the regulations actually coming and being enforced? Or is it still something which is in the discussions? I still do my, my, my weird analogy with the micropollutants, but when the European law came out, the, the framework directive, which was classifying that you would have to do something on micropollutants, it was setting the bars somewhere in the future and already including the opportunity that you, you can ask for delays And you can ask several times for, for delays and the delays are each time seven or nine years. So if you ask three different times for seven years, it makes 20 years where you're still free of doing nothing. So just to say there's regulation and regulation. So what is in the pipe? What did you see happening? Yeah, so I think there's a chance to work with these different government regulatory ecosystem because they need to see that there's a cost-effective solution. They cannot just only introduce stick because it will close down their local economy and it will lose local jobs. They cannot afford that. Most economies rely on these things as a foundational element. So what, what I think is missing is ecosystem awareness around the cost-effectiveness of, of solutions and those getting adopted. And then I think it is a bit like playing with fire. So it's very powerful if managed, but hazardous, very hazardous to get it wrong. You saw the timing for the arsenic regulations that killed many adsorbent startups. And I think for PFAS, it is sadly roughly proportional to the average income of the citizens within that country or state. Uh, so you have the Scandinavian countries that have actually introduced PFAS regulations. You have some of the dark region with Switzerland as an example, or Netherlands, not less so, but that have also introduced regulations. And then you have these 12 states in the US, again, roughly proportional to average income, like in the northeast and the southwest, uh, and basically those two coast areas. What these sites represent, they provide these sort of incubating periods, a breeding ground for new PFAS solutions. And then if you can demonstrate that price performance curve, you can bring the regulators there, much like Graham Pierce and the others did for membrane filtration back in the day, then show them this works at this scale. There's this business case for the local. You operate it with people who also get employed. So <laughs> there's some sort of carrot as well. Then I think you can start to see regulations having teeth. Before that, many of the Western sites will not have enough teeth. You did see the water framework regulations change in February 2020 for PFAS, and that was enacted into law this year, January. But again, those are mostly like, in my mind, lip services until you see the price performance curve for the technologies. They cannot afford loss of jobs. So that means you have the technical side of it, which is you can remove it and all of that, but you have also the, the business side of it and the financial equation, which is it has to be cost competitive so that you can force people to treat them just because it's affordable. So the affordability comes into play, which, which leads me to some business questions around what you're doing. Let me take a preliminary question here because you remind me a bit of uh, Matthew Silver which I had the pleasure to have on that microphone, who is a brilliant guy, and who was saying on that microphone that 
when he started being an entrepreneur in the water industry, he encountered many things he simply had not expected. So I'm just wondering, you come with that tech background, you win the second prize in, in that MIT contest, and all of a sudden you're sticking with the mission purpose and you're in the water industry. Was it straightforward or did you have a lot of these design, test and learn curves? Uh, yeah, I think the, the first message when we came out and we were looking at doing a, a startup out of it was, hey guys, uh, developing a technology is a battle, getting to market is a war. <laughs> and most of my team at that point, we, we were sitting around, right? They were like, oh shit. I don't like war, but I will be very honest. Like from me, I was like, oh, I kind of, I, I like war. It's like, I, I like this sort of long cycling trips and like Shaolin monk stays where you don't get to eat anything else but like steamed mantos and like eat vegetables. So I, I think there's a recognition that you, you need to go through many battles and win them to get to have a, a market adoption of your thing. There's a massive step for us. And I'll be very honest, there's a big tale of iGEM projects that are testament to just how few actually make the leap. Uh, so in our year, there are 250 projects in 2014. And every year since, there's been at least that number, sometimes 300 now. And there's only about 50 ventures that have spun out of that competition, even though biotech is really hot and really cool and apparently very fundable. I think one of the biggest ones is the different mindset required. In academia, you can get away with developing something cool if you can publish it. So we put out a publication, PNAS. If you can do that, great. Just continue doing that and you get a pat on the bag and promotion eventually. But in commercial world, that's not enough. Uh, you need to operate within constraint. And that's where the engineering part of me is like turned on. It's like, oh, amazing. So we can search this whole experimental space scientifically, but we're stuck with just this quarter of it because of safety constraint or because of uh, cost constraint. We cannot do like 20 steps to making this material. You, you got to keep it within three or five. And it's like, oh, okay. It's kind of like, it's, it's an interesting challenge. And I think... Those obstacles laid on top of IP negotiations with the university, lab access. You cannot do this in a shed. You're handling stuff that's 50 times more toxic than arsenic. You could get sued so bad anywhere in the world for discharging these chemicals, even at the lowest levels. And then you overlay that with the challenge you just mentioned of bringing different disciplines together. So how are you going to get water process engineers talking to high throughput screening scientists and material scientists under one roof? They, they speak different languages. They don't even drink the same coffee. Like everything is different, different cultures, right? And I think that catches out many of us as startups. And there were definitely challenges we had to go through. Not that I want to, to depress you here, but if I recall what, what Paul O'Callaghan shared on, on, on that microphone, the time to adoption in the water treatment market is about 35 years between fundamental research and mass market. So even though you're going to have early adopters and you, you'll be already somewhere along the way between 12 and, and 16 years from the, the moment you start, still, if you go by the average, it's really a long ball game. But do you expect to be better than the average to that extent? Yeah, I think I think what's exciting about it is you're not stuck with just one thing when you're doing entrepreneurship. So in our case, we can develop a solution for PFAS and use that same tech stack to develop solutions for, let's say, just for the sake of it, antimicrobial resistance, antibacterial resistance, or for uh, biological separation for biomanufacturing for the bioeconomy. And so when you can do those bets in parallel, it becomes more, let's say for me, uh, satisfying. If you're just stuck with one thing for 35 years, it's like, oh, just bang your head against the wall already because it's like, yeah, it would be very more monotone. And then the other thing that's cool for me is it's not just about treatment technology. It's also about what you can do with it. So if you can have access to these pollution data sets that basically sit on top of the treatment technology at multiple sites, you can inform third parties, be it the government or the local insurance policy, about, oh, this is a PFAS hotspot. Maybe we should handle it. Or, 
oh, this is a P4 hotspot. There is another problem just emerging because of a new factory that's been set up. We should do something. That becomes really powerful. And then it becomes about more than just the treatment technology. You mentioned that biotech is a field which is easy to get funded. I'm putting the easy in, into many brackets. And you also mentioned that there were many arsenic startups which just died by waiting for the market to take off. So I think that's the two extremes because you're dying when you run out of cash, I guess, or out of motivation probably as well, but out of cash as something that, that's even more deadly. How does that look like for you in terms of funding? Do you go into investment funds and you just push the door and say, hey, I'm into PFAS plus I'm in the 30 and the 30 and the 35 and the 35. So, uh, and they just spread money at you. I'm, I'm, I'm really asking a stupid question here, but how does that look like for you? I think one has to be, like we in general as a field have to be really disciplined with how we raise funding because the water treatment space is not just any market. It is a different beast. And I think often, whether it's the arsenic startups or something else, we get into tricky situations because we bring on the wrong investors. So that was one lesson for us. We had investors interested early on that didn't understand anything about water treatment. And we said, okay, hold on a second. Uh, we're just going to figure out our market. And we spent four years figuring out the market and the product that we wanted to go for before raising equity funds. And then when it comes to raising VC funds, obviously that's a different podcast, but really we optimized for the partner that we could bring in. We wanted... What you see again and again is bankers turned VCs and they basically ask for a lot of financials and that's that's it. That's a diligence and that's what they care about. For us, we wanted to optimize for that risk around regulations. We wanted to optimize for that risk around market adoption that we all know is overlooked in water treatment. Uh, and so we actually brought on a corporate VC from the US who's really well versed in US regulations and government. They've spent 90 years investing in sustainability and material science, and they're well-connected to these top-level officials. So just before the lockdown, they set up a PFAS panel for us. They brought in EPA officials. They brought in people from the original PFAS Parkersburg lawsuit, and they brought in tech providers all in one roof. We're actually in person at one of the last few conferences uh, with bipartisan representation. And I think that is a massive value add uh, compared to just a financial investor. And then, yeah, for our financial investors, we basically went out and found operators turned VCs. So instead of bankers turned VCs, these are people that have run biotech companies or deep tech companies in the past. And they bring the empathy. They know how to build companies. They don't know the water treatment space. We lean on the corporate VCs for that. But they know how to build ventures. If I just connect that to my... My question just before on the timeline, I mean, VC and venture capital in general is still quite a new route for the water industry. And often because there's a disconnect between the, the timeline of VC expects between investment and exit and the timeline of the, the water technology adoption on, on the water market. Because if you expect an exit within six or eight years in the water market, it's going to be quite challenging. So do you have pressure to that extent? Do you have to be as fast as if you were, I don't know, Uber or, or Twitter, or, <laughs> or do you have some, some flexibility due to the market you're addressing? Yeah, I think that what we're seeing a new breed of uh, funders these days that focus on deep tech. And within deep tech, you might have uh, drug discovery companies, you might have new quantum computing companies, you might have new semiconductor companies, and the timelines there are changing. So they, they still expect venture returns. So the returns have to be large, but they have time horizons of possibly 10, 12 years, and they have very strict technical milestones. So they understand the technology and they want to see that progress. So don't get me wrong, it's not easier, but the timelines are much better suited for this. And I think, again, it's back to my first comment. You have to be very careful with actually scoping out what kind of investors you get on board. If you have a few local angels who are expecting a return in three years' time because they need to buy a car for their daughter, that's really difficult. Once they're on your shareholder register, you can't get rid of them. It's worse than getting a divorce. So I think that's something to take advantage of. Macro trend for deep tech startups, aligning ourselves to those sort of large companies being built. And you saw the, the, the recent 
who bought them? Was it AutoCAD, Autodesk? There was a large acquisition recently for a software-based uh, water treatment analytics. That's AutoDesk provider. buying Innovise, if you recall right. Yes, Innovise. You see larger exits within our space, and that's encouraging. It's still very nascent. But if that can become a macro trend, I think we can raise the profile of the space. Innovise was the first of its kind, so you can see it's uh, two ways. First way to see it is to, to look at it is to say, okay, it's a new something, a new trend or a new path. And the other way to look at it is it's a white elephant and there are not that much white elephants. So probably it's a bit in between. I realized that we have 50 minutes within the podcast and I didn't even mention the name of your company, Pure Affinity. I'm asking you to have a look in my crystal ball. Where do you see Pure Affinity in five years, in 10 years? And then I have a bonus question. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so I see Pure Affinity becoming a material science leader for these sort of environmental applications. And the defined target there is really to have PFAS as the first asset that we build. In terms of at scale in this sort of 10-year view, I would love for that to be like an institution. So vertically integrated across manufacturing, discovery, application engineering, uh, and working with several partners to do it. We're not expecting to do it alone. But at scale, that can become a very large company. And trying to have those new breeds of company come out of Europe would, to me, be very exciting. Trying to have them with a more diverse team makeup. So we have like 50% female team members. We have a high BAME percentage of maybe 30 40%. Trying to have those metrics and show that it leads to superior outcomes would be really exciting to me. You do realize that there was never in history a unicorn in the water industry. So would that be an ambition for you to, to be the first unicorn? Uh, I think we don't want to be the first necessarily. And we like to stay under the radar. So if we can be like a gazelle to start with, that would be good. And then uh, once we've built into a gazelle, it's trying to become, have that granular media cell as a cash growth engine. So you're not just relying on new fundraising rounds and where you put that landmark for like, is it 500 or five billion that's the valuation because you're actually generating cash for yourself not necessarily massively profitable but that's where i want to get to and where i think the water treatment space can operate i don't think we can take these boom and bust cycles that the, the larger tech space can take well here's my bonus question which is a curveball so you're allowed to answer joker do you see at some point in time an exit for you and starting something new Or is your intention to, to stick with what you do and to really bring it as far as possible? I think I see a massive chance to bring in more stuff to the Pure Affinity institution. And many of those new things would basically be like small incubated startups almost, the way we are taking on new projects. For me personally, I would love to just stick with one. I like these sort of long journeys, whether it's a cycling trip or something else. And I would like to make an example with this one. We're not trying to do this to, to build for an exit, but we are trying to build like a really superior financial outcome to make a, a case for this application. You can see what, what's possible. So like five years before us, there was an iGEM startup that came about called Ginkgo Bioworks. They're right now going public with a $15 billion valuation. And they've just spun out a startup to do PFAS biological destruction which is really exciting to us and a great example of what can be achieved. I have a last question for you in that deep dive. We had that red thread of the competition that was at the very beginning of Pure Affinity. And if I get that right, you won the second prize. And we've seen how that second prize brought you to a place where not that much water startup reached the point where you are. Clearly, I mean, you're not a unicorn because it doesn't exist yet, but I think Your goal of being a gazelle is always something which is on the way, clearly. Who won that competition? Because <laughs> they must be crazy, crazy good. Yeah, yeah. So the, the winner was Heidelberg from Germany. And they had really cool technology for making circular proteins to make them heat stable. And they really try, they tried to transform a technology you've probably heard a lot about lately. It's PCR. They never spun out as a venture. It wasn't as novel at the time, so they didn't publish a high-impact peer-reviewed paper. But it probably could have been a unicorn if it was executed as a startup. Just about 
how many PCR tests are taking place. And if those could be more done more easily with their technology, that would be great, right? So it's it's back to that question of what are the barriers? Why didn't they spin up something? Maybe they were stuck with not access to labs or with IP negotiations and something else. I think there's a lot of untapped potential. It's basically what I mean. They were one example. I think that is one topic which is on my bucket list for a while about this, how you can better the way and ease the way for entrepreneurs to translate great academic ideas into into ventures. But clearly, if I open that box right now, I have to keep you on that mic for another hour. So at some point in the future, when you reach that unicornish level or a gazelle level or whatever milestone, I think we have to have that discussion because that is really something which is probably the missing link today in our industry. Yeah, agreed. Henrik, it's been a big pleasure to have that deep dive with you. I propose you to switch to the last section, which is the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. So in that section, I try to keep the questions short and you've seen that it's not my, my first strength. Uh, <laughs> and you can try to keep the, the answers short and don't worry, I'm the one which is sidetracking all the time. My first question is, what is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? So for me, it's definitely trying to see the PFAS regeneration because I could just imagine that circular world with non-virgin PFAS saving lives. It's very futuristic right now, but if you could combine that with these sort of engineered living materials, you could have materials that sense when PFAS is released, treat it and capture it, and then provide the means for you to regenerate it. That to me would be really uh, exciting and useful, not just exciting, but useful. Is it science fiction or will that happen anytime soon? It's science fiction right now, but it, people are working on it. And the European Commission is funding engineered living materials. And people like Tom Ellis is doing this for biotech. So it's coming. Still slightly science fiction, but I think it's going to become science fact eventually. What's your favorite part of your current job? Oh, it's, it's working with the, with the team. I, I, I mean, just this week, I've been humbled to be lectured on a new chemical pathway by a 19-year-old. And then after that, I get to learn from a long-term water exec about the most efficient treatment train for medium hardness groundwater remediation. And it's about the variations in operating conditions for these two steps. And it's like, that's fantastic. I just get humbled all the time. How many people are you in your, in your team today? Just today, we had a new starter. So we're 16 full-time people now. Out of which two were part of your original team in the competition. Yeah, yeah. And one of those two is part-time. So it really is a long journey. Yeah. What is the trend to watch out in the water industry and you're not allowed to answer PFAS? Yeah, so I, I think I'll just take a step back here. It's, I think to me it's translating tools into our space. So let's be honest, we're not first adopters. We're learning from others because we cannot afford the high development cost. Uh, so for me, those are like, circular economy, the biotech tools coming in, decentralized approaches, and cloud-based digitization. And what I mean by that is how can we leapfrog other sectors? We want to avoid the whole mess with on-prem digitization and move straight to cloud for digitization. And I think those are some of the cool things. And then combine that all together. And the coolest trend you're going to see is pollution data sets for the sector. Predictive capability with that and inform policy Oh, that would be, yeah, helpful. There again, if I sidetrack you, we open one hour because that is also one of my, my topics, which, which is my bucket list, but which is close to my heart. <laughs> what is the thing you care about the most when you're working on a new project? And what is the one you care the least? Yeah, so for me, the most is how to do this efficiently. So without waste of resource and by applying a failure originates from the failure to foresee failure mindset. You can see the, the poster behind me, but basically it says the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. And I think that applies to new projects, the less you bleed in customer adoption. The thing I care least about is basically like exactly which technical approach we use. I'm a more promiscuous founder. I, I want to solve for the problem, not necessarily for the technology. As long as it's sustainable, I'm happy to, to learn new ways of doing things. Do you have sources to recommend to keep up with the water and wastewater market trends? 
Yeah, yeah. So I think your podcast is obviously one of them. I definitely check Thanks. it out. The <laughs> graphics, they're amazing. And then another one is like cool scientific hacker competitions. So you, you check out just the most recent, uh, let's say, iGen projects, whatever, lots of wacky ideas in water. And those wacky ideas might be pushing frontier knowledge in five, 10 years from now. And then I love these sort of nature-inspired approaches. Read academic journals on biomimetic design. You can even learn how to design a better treatment plant with the way you connect the pipes, like a leaf. And that sort of wacky stuff can really be very actionable. And last question, would you have someone to recommend me to have on that same microphone? Yeah, so I think the Silmar group is one. Peter Silmar and Michael Wardy. Elonia as well. Elonia's Nicole, who is their CEO, might be one as well. I'll add a third one. Because I'm a founder, I don't follow rules that well. Uh, I would say, imagine H2O's Kelly, Kelly Trott. If, if you haven't talked to her yet, she's excellent as well. We have something in the pipe. I cannot say it's done, but uh, we have something in the pipe there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Henrik, it's been a pleasure to spend that little bit over an hour, sorry for that, with you. Um, I'd love to have you again on that microphone to discuss your next steps and all the other topics which I've put in the fridge for today, but I would have had so much more questions for you. So, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.